Hello and welcome to episode one of the Applied Policy Podcast, Applied Policy Insight. Uh, I am here. My name is Christina Kincaid. I am with my colleague, Melissa Andal. I will be hosting this podcast today, helping with our conversation and our discussion inside drug pricing. And I'm also with Melissa, who I'm going to turn it over to her and I'll let her introduce herself to the group. Hi, my name is Melissa Andell. I am the Vice President of Health Policy here at Applied Policy, and I primarily work with our pharmaceutical manufacturer clients on issues that they're having with both government programs, but also with commercial healthcare uh, programs as well. So just general market access and strategy development with a focus on pharmaceutical manufacturers. And I'm excited to talk a little bit about drug pricing today. It's a big topic. Uh, and I am very excited. So I know Pre- President Trump on Friday, so that's Friday the 5th, he had come out and said that he was going to make sure that all drug prices were going to be posted. And I think that that's especially interesting because today, um, you know, having the posting of the drug right. prices and direct to consumer ads was um, reversed. And I'm sure that the administration is going to appeal it. So I'm just a little bit um, curious to see what you think. And so I mostly deal with our services clients. So if you feel a little bit lost with drug pricing, I probably am too. So I'm going to ask all the dumb questions. And Melissa is the expert. So, I mean, Melissa, what are your just your overall thoughts? Right. So I think um, as we really think about drug pricing, this is obviously very complex and complicated. Um, you know, it, it, the president was right. Um, this is healthcare in general is very complicated, but especially drug pricing. And one of the first concepts I wanted to just lay out and sort of level set with the audience is there are really two different worlds of drug pricing. Um, The drugs that you pick up at the pharmacy, your pills, tablets, capsules, um, or auto-inject yourself at home, your self-administered drugs, are generally managed under your health plan's pharmacy benefit. And then drugs that you receive in a physician office or any sort of a facility, they're usually infused. Those drugs are generally covered under a medical benefit. And it's really important to understand that the healthcare system thinks about these two different types of drugs almost as two different items. Um, They are priced separately, they are managed differently, and the supply chain and the follow the money chain works differently for both of those drugs, um, for both of those two different types of drugs. So, I think that's a that sort of a fundamental concept first to think about because it really does help us understand what the Trump administration is doing. And so with that being said, uh, a little over a year ago, uh, the administration released a blueprint um, on drug pricing reform. I'm sure that our listeners are aware that our Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, uh, most recently was the CEO of a large pharmaceutical manufacturer. Actually, prior to that, um, Secretary Azar worked in the George W. Bush administration at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, helping get the Part D 
as in dog, prescription drug benefit off the ground. So Secretary Azar is very well versed in these issues. He understands this market. He understands what's going on. And I think that knowledge also helps to inform as we kind of think about what are they really trying to do? What is their end goal? So I have a, a question. So, I mean, Secretary Azar is clearly very well versed in you know drug pricing. So why do you think now this is coming about? So I think that it's just gotten to the point where the American public is very angry and upset mm-hmm. and concerned about prescription drug pricing, that it's gotten to the point where uh, the politicians can't ignore it any longer. Uh, historically, we have seen Republican administrations and Republican Congresses, you know, really want to rely on the market um, to control drug prices and to keep the government out of any sort of price setting um, or price regulation. Um, but we are definitely starting to see that Overton window, if you will, shift um, to where even the Republicans are now starting to be to become more open to some of these policies, whereas perhaps eight or 10 years ago, um, it, they would have just been complete non-starters. And I think that's coming from the public. Um, I've seen public polls that show, you know, close to 80% of Americans think that drug prescription drugs are too expensive which is actually kind of interesting because only about 60% of Americans take a prescription drug in any given year. So, um, you know, we have people who may or may not actually be filling prescriptions upset about the price of prescription drugs. And another thing to keep in mind too, is that the vast majority of prescriptions that are dispensed in this country are generics. Um, Over 90% of prescriptions are filled by generics. And while there have been instances of generic uh, drugs that have seen prices sort of increase over the past year, um, actually overall as an industry, Um, their average prices are declining. So I think for the average American, they may or may not really be facing high prescription drug costs out of their pocket, but I think they feel like they are. You know, so I've heard a lot of times, you know, you go to a pharmacy and you can get, you know, say a generic antibiotic that is seven dollars, which I think most people are not talking about, but say you go get... Um, you know, a new drug to market that is $5,000 a month or $6,000 a month. And so, you know, I think those people are the ones that are really talking about the expensive drug prices. Uh, But then I also wonder, you know, it takes so much research and development to get a drug up and running all of the FDA trials. And I've always been under the assumption that that is what drives up the cost until later down the road, you know, a generic comes out and it can bring that price down. So I guess from my perspective, I really wonder if posting the price of a drug is really going to lower that cost when it takes so much to get it up. I guess that's kind of the blind spot right. I never how, understood. How, how did we get here? Um, <laughs> right. in, in other words, um, you know, so we got here a couple of different ways. Um, I think a big thing that is acknowledged in a lot of the news articles and analysis that you see 
is that simply the market for prescription drug research and development has completely shifted. Um, and that is, we are sort of victims of our own success um, in that sense. Um, all of the statins that were revolutionary drugs that helped reduce cholesterol for millions of Americans, um, they are all generic now. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the diabetes drugs, your hyper antihypertensive drugs, um, uh, you know, as I was saying, like a lot of the, we don't really have, um, those are what were known as blockbuster drugs. Um, so, you know, price times volume. Um, so Lipitor comes out and, you know, I think when Lipitor launches is going to date me, but I believe that the price of a 30 day supply was somewhere in the three to $400 range, okay. which I think today, if, if somebody said a brand new prescription drug that is first in its class, then it's something that we've never seen in, with a new mechanism of action, um, you know, to only not only, but the, I think sort of the fact that I'm now referring to that is only three or four hundred dollars a month. It really shows where we are. Um, but when you think about it, think about the tens of millions of Americans who have high blood or high cholesterol. And, um, you know, so you take that three hundred, three hundred and fifty dollars and you multiply that by a very large number um, to get your potential market. Um, now, though, really all of the research and development um, is really focused in these orphan and rare diseases. So the potential patient population for these products is, is relatively small. So when you think, again, about trying to recoup research and development... They have to be expensive. They have to be expensive. And they're also really good drug. The hepatitis C drugs are usually the um, example that everybody goes to when they think about drug prices that are quote unquote out of control. Um, I think these were the first products that were really high profile. Um, you know, they had list prices in the 70 to $80,000 range. I mean, so I would also argue that Yes, seventy to eighty thousand dollars is incredibly expensive, especially for someone who is not expecting this huge bill. But it has to be cheaper than the cost of an organ transplant. It is um, organ transplants. You know, I believe a liver transplant costs approximately a hundred thousand mm -hmm. um, dollars, and then the patient is on immunosuppressant therapy for the rest of their life. Um, so when you start comparing the relative costs of treatments. Um, perhaps, you know, I, I, that is something important to keep in mind. Um, you know, I think HIV is another example where in a generation or less than a generation, in 20 years, we have taken HIV from a literal death sentence. There was nothing we could do and you would die. We have turned it into a chronic condition that is managed just like diabetes and high blood pressure. And that is pretty it's incredible. Amazing. And it's amazing. And so when you do start to think about these treatments, um, the CAR-T gene therapy is, is one of the newer treatments that's also getting a lot of headlines, but that is a treatment for cancer patients who have run out of all their options. Um, and, you know, so I think when you do start to think about the drug prices, what some of these therapies are offering um, is something 
really important to keep in mind as well. And so I think that the value proposition, um, it, it's a very complex and difficult conversation to have because we're now starting to talk about, well, I mean, I'm a parent mm-hmm. and I know that if a doctor told me that, you know, m- my child had been diagnosed with cancer and was out of options, I would empty my bank account, sell my house and move into my car. Um, yeah, I think that has been, I mean, and I would do the same yeah. for my son. I mean, I would literally do anything for him. And I think that that's an argument that a lot of people say is that they, we have this drug I will go bankrupt trying to buy it regardless of the price. And so I think the intention from President Trump is saying, well, I'm going to step in here and issue this executive order, uh, you know, just by transparency alone, opening up, you know, the buying network, the selling network. We're going to drive these prices down because no longer will the prices be in the shadows. Right. And so I guess... I'm a little hesitant. I don't think that that's necessarily true because there's not just one price. Oh, there's there's not. You're right. I was getting ready to mm-hmm. say. So which price are you talking about? Well, so I guess from my perspective, I go to the pharmacy. I fill the prescription. The technician tells me how much it is. And I either have a heart attack or I'm like, oh, that's not bad. You know, thank, thank God for insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, but so tell me your perspective, because I know that there are many prices and those are the ones that really aren't talked about. Yeah. So there's it's helpful to sort of think about prices in three different buckets. And I will say here um I'm talking right now about our pharmacy benefit drugs. So our self-administered drugs, the drugs that you go to pick up at your local drugstore or receive in the mail from a mail order pharmacy. Um, There's sort of three different prices. There is the list price of that drug. Um, So there are companies that publish pricing compendia uh, manufacturers will report self-report prices to those companies. A lot of the price that is generally used as a benchmark uh, nowadays, wholesale acquisition cost or WAC. There is not a formal methodology for calculating that price. Uh, it's it is what the manufacturer says it is. So that is known as sort of the sticker price. Or if you're buying a car, that's the price that's on the car in the lot. So that is not the price that it I'm going to pay. I Very mean, rarely. Right. I mean, I would never walk into a car dealership and say, you know what? That price tag looks great. Right. Yeah, it's sold. Um, so no. So that price, the list price, the wholesale acquisition cost or whack is what was the subject of this direct-to-consumer advertising rule that the Trump administration uh, finalized a couple months ago and was actually struck down by the courts yesterday. Um, So that is just the list price. And I think one of the criticisms of the DTC ad rule, which um, in short required uh, drug manufacturers to include list prices, um, in any direct-to-consumer ads was that it's just a price. It's not the price that people pay. And so what are people supposed to do with this information and mm-hmm. is it valuable information? So there's that price. There's also what is known as, or what I refer to as the net cost of the drug. And that is at the end of the day, 
um, for the end payer, which generally in this country is an insurance plan, either a commercial insurance, Medicare or Medicaid. What is the cost after you factor in rebates, administrative fees, all those sorts of things um, to the end payer for the drug? And that's a net cost. And so to go back to the hepatitis C example, um, you know, there started to some some news outlets were reporting just a couple years ago that it turned out that the drugs that had a list price of seventy or eighty thousand dollars were really only costing health plans. And again, I'm I'm using only again mm-hmm. to describe mm-hmm. a pretty big number, and I realize that uh, we're costing health plans closer to forty five or fifty thousand dollars. But that's a big difference. I mean, jumping from eighty thousand to fifty thousand. I mean, that's a pretty that is severe, a really big, I mean, it's not inexpensive, but that's a big discount. It, it is a big discount, and here's where it gets even more complicated. So, um, back in the the good old days, um, mm-hmm. when many uh, pharmacy benefits were used flat co-payments. Um, so maybe you had a $5 copayment for generics and a $10 or $15 copayment for a brand drug. Um, no matter what the actual cost of the drug was, you were only liable for that flat copayment amount. As drugs have gotten more expensive, uh, we've started to see insurance companies shift to co-insurance. Uh, yes. yes. So yes. that is where instead of a flat copayment, you're responsible for 20% of the cost of a drug or 33% if you're a Medicare beneficiary. And then I do think it's a very important to know about, well, if I'm paying a percentage of a price, well, what price <laughs> am I, the price? <laughs> am I am paying I a paying? percentage on? And that actually um, leads to the second big Trump administration move. Um, We are still waiting for it to be finalized, but I think we've seen enough in the tea leaves um, to feel pretty confident that that they will be finalizing at some point this year. Um, A regulation that would essentially require uh, pharmacy benefit managers And those are the uh, entities that contract with health plans to manage the pharmacy benefit on behalf of the health plan members, that they be required to pass the rebates through um, directly to the consumers um, as they're filling the prescription. So in other words, if the uh, list price of a drug was $100 and the PBM had negotiated a 30% rebate. So at the end of the day, it was only costing uh, the plan $70 um, that they be required to use that $70 price to calculate any coinsurance or cost liability instead of the higher list price. Okay, so this would be different than the executive order, correct? We think. Okay, so I guess another thing I'm just generally a little confused about is how is all of this going to work together, especially because this topic, it hasn't been explored with such intensity before. So I wonder, you know, we're going to have, you know, perhaps a separate rule come out, perhaps an executive order. Um, There's the executive order on, you know, surprise billing that, President Trump talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, so I feel like there's a lot. There's just there's a lot, a lot going, going on. on. No, there there is a lot going on. 
Um, you know, the, the, I will say this, the administration has definitely been very active in um, the area of drug pricing over the past year. Um, and so I do think that, that this is a very valid question. Um, going back to the rebate, the issue of the rebates, um, you know, it sounds very nefarious, right? It does sound. You nefarious. have um, this middleman, uh, PBM, that you've never really heard of that is contracting with your health plan. They are negotiating these super secret rebates that nobody knows about, nobody knows about, um, except for the manufacturer and the PBM. Even the health plans don't know about them. Um, you know, they're tightly protected. Um, they're negotiating these rebates and sure they're telling you that they're passing through the rebates. But and, you never but really you know. don't know, right. Um, but the other side of that coin is uh, PBMs were using the revenue generated from these rebates um, to make a profit. Yes, they are for-profit companies, <laughs> so their shareholders expect them to turn profits. So that is where they generate profit. Um, but they use most of that money to lower premiums. So that seems like a great application. Right. Of savings. Yeah. And like I said before, remember, not every American uh, fills a prescription, um, but a lot of Americans pay monthly premiums mm -hmm. um, for prescription drug coverage. And so I think that, again, just like it's a perfectly valid and reasonable conversation to have of what is the equitable outcome for a patient who is subject to coinsurance for a very high-priced drug um, as far as their out-of-pocket costs. But what about the health plan member that is not filling any prescriptions or maybe just filling one or two low-cost generic prescriptions and maybe their biggest out-of-pocket cost, so to speak, is their monthly premium? I feel my monthly premium. I'm always, you know, shocked, you know, especially when, you know, we had my son and we jumped up to the, the family category. Oh, right. Yeah. That was a big shock. And yeah. I knew it was coming, but it was still a shock. It is. And um, so it's all about trade-offs, right? And so I think that that's the other difficult conversation that we need to have is, is what are the trade-offs that we're willing to make um, to provide some out-of-pocket relief for patients uh, with conditions or diseases that have high drug spend associated with them? How do we protect their out-of-pocket costs while also protecting out-of-pocket costs for the general health plan members who are actually, you know, from an actuarial sense, they're the members that are sort of funding the the or making it possible to be able to afford these high cost drugs because they're paying premiums and maybe not, um, you know, ringing up a lot of costs on that side of the ledger. Um, so so that is a really interesting conversation. I don't think we've fully had that yet. And I do think um, that is actually why the administration seem to be full steam ahead on this rebate transparency uh, provision and implementing it before 2020. Mm -hmm. um, we were expecting it to come out 
I had been saying for the longest time, I thought the timing was really weird because if you implemented it for 2020, um, it would hit Medicare Part D, as in dog. Um, it would hit plan year 2021. And when do uh, senior citizens sign up for their Medicare hmm. coverage um, for 2021? Any guesses? Um, oh, gosh. This is a tough one. I will give you a hint. It's October and November. Wow, that's timing. It is. And Imagine there's, that. There's some other high-profile event also taking place in early November of 2020 that, um, you know, especially with your Medicare beneficiary <laughs> beneficiaries being a pretty reliable voting block. Um, I'm not sure if that's really the pot you want to stir. Yeah. So I'm going to say <laughs> that what you're saying is that all of this timing is very intentional, um, strategic. I would think so. And, and I, I think think that's what they're doing. I'm presuming that the delay on the rebate mm-hmm. uh, rule is a sort of drag it out. So maybe the premium increase doesn't hit until 2021. Yep. Yep. Maybe even later, um, there's been uh, hints that CMS might do some sort of a, a quote demonstration project that would essentially um, heavily subsidize the premiums for the first two years that this rule would be in effect. Um, to sort of shield beneficiaries a little bit, make it a little bit more gradual. Um, but I, I have a feeling that um, the political implications of such a move um, are in play. Yeah, so um, that sounds like a really great hypothesis. As all of these, you know, the executive order potentially comes out, all of these new regulations. Um, so we are going to watch those for the next couple months. Um, and then to wrap things up, so we actually have two client questions, um, and we they were good ones, so we thought that we would share here. And so um, I'll go ahead and read the first one. That is, would any changes made by this executive order have a ripple effect exceeding Trump's presidency? And I'm going to let Melissa answer this one. This is a great question, um, you know, because it, another important thing to keep in mind is that Relatively speaking, the federal government doesn't have a whole lot of control over uh, commercial health plans or um, what happens. Remember, the majority of Americans are still covered uh, by employer-sponsored health plans or uh, individual health plans that are direct purchase. Um, So they get coverage from a private commercial health plan. Um, The... There is, a, you know, obviously Medicare and Medicaid are two very large programs and the federal government is the largest single entity that mm-hmm. is paying for health care, but it's not the largest source of coverage. So the administration, without help from Congress, is really sort of limited to working within Medicare and Medicaid. And the Medicaid prescription drug benefit it's already subject to price controls. Um, the Medicaid drug rebate, they have a statutory rebate that manufacturers are supposed to um, provide that functions essentially as a, a price ceiling. Um, that's really already in play in Medicaid. There's not a lot that we can do with that without fundamentally altering the program. So there, So we're really just looking at Medicare here. Um, and so... Outside of Medicare, though, I do think it's a, it's a good thing to think about of, of 
how much of an impact, what we're looking at would be ripple effects or um, something where if with more price transparency, I think it then becomes easier. Um, you know, right now, a health plan or a pharmacy benefit manager that has a commercial book of business and a Medicare book of business, whether that's Medicare Advantage or Medicare Part D, um, they are required to have a firewall between mm -hmm. the two mm -hmm. and to keep the negotiations separate. Um, I think when you start increasing transparency, though, um, you know, what starts to happen on the commercial side and, and do we start to see some pressure um, for prices to come down? Um, so um, I think the, the short answer is not that much directly. Um, but there is, I think, the potential to have sort of some overflow ripple effects. Okay, great. And I think that actually leads us pretty nicely into our next question that we got. And so the next Which question. Which is really for you. It so is. I should it probably is ask you. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I, I I'll that. ask. All right. So how could transparency in drug pricing potentially affect transparency elsewhere? So this is a great question. I primarily work with our services clients, so hospital systems, um, physician payment, what we have seen the past few months is that, you know, this administration is also looking to target transparency, particularly with surprise medical billing. A couple weeks ago, there was an executive order that came out, and it was essentially stating that there needed to be more transparency specifically within hospitals. So the executive order mandated that within 60 days that HHS needed to come out through its you know, formal rulemaking process some type of rule that outlines that hospitals needed to post their charges in advance so patients could shop around. And so I when think, you're planning to have a heart attack, right? And can... that's that's the thing. And so, so a lot of times when people go to an acute care hospital, so not a surgical center, an ambulatory surgical center, which is scheduled in advance, but a true emergency that requires admission to the hospital, a visit to the emergency room department. People don't sit down and say, oh, I'm having a heart attack. Let me shop around for prices. And the other thing is that it is very hard for a hospital to be able to list their prices. And yes, I understand if you it's not like going to a store and comparing two you know, different items. It's not like that because you have commercial insurers you have Medicare, Medicaid, those, those all have different negotiated rates. And it's very similar to the drug pricing where the price that it is, isn't actually the price. And it's also well known that um, there is a hierarchy in pricing for hospitals. You, you know, I mean, it's, it's sort of common knowledge, at least among the health policy community. Um, everybody knows that Medicaid pays the lowest. Medicare is somewhere in the middle, and uh, the commercial pays more than Medicare and pays the highest. Right, because all of those rates are negotiated. And then if you even get down into commercial payers, each of those plans is different as well. And so I think while the, I, I guess I don't think, I hope that the intentions are good. And I think that, yes, no one should be hit with a $100,000 hospital bill there needs to be a happy medium. You can't just mandate that, you know, these large hospital systems or any hospital system has to post their prices because it's just not realistic. The other thing I wonder about is 
how much burden is this going to place on those facilities, but also their physicians. So when I was practicing, um, and a little background information, I'm a speech-language pathologist, and I actually left clinical practice because I was very frustrated with all of the burden and what I could do being mandated by insurance companies or facilities rules. And I thought, you know what, I'll go into policy and I will change this. Um, And I guess the jury's still out if that plan is working for me. But I just, I think that anything that places more burden on physicians and clinicians should really be taken with a little bit more trepidation because although the intentions, again, I hope that they're good, this could really backfire in a big way. Right. I think it is, um, it's it's really tough. And you are also um, have a lot of experience with coding. So I do. I do. I know a lot about coding. So there's not just one code to describe many things. Yes, there is not. And so there's many different codes, but you can have a diagnosis code. And so those ICD codes were in ICD-10 now. Uh, With that revision, the diagnoses got a lot more specific. So although those codes don't dictate the cost of services, the diagnosis codes really needs to line up with the procedural codes, which are the CPT codes. So if those don't match up, there can be some problems, but also there can be multiple codes that describe um, services that are within an episode. Even though the CPT codes are discrete, or they should be, that's how they were meant to be created, you never really know because the clinical presentation of someone differs from person to person. And I think it's probably even more difficult for a layperson to know if they're shopping for right. their um, for their heart attack. Correct. Um, I you mean, know, so how are they going to, there's no way to right. fully predict the service. Um, I think, you know, a lot of times people say, well, I will schedule a surgery and for surgery, I should be able to, Um, you know, pinpoint a really exact cost of what that is going to be out of pocket. But then it gets into that discussion of, okay, is this within an ambulatory surgical center? Because that's different than an acute care hospital. What if you have a surgery and there are XYZ complications? What about that? Right. And how are you going to look up the CPT code for that? Or perhaps you get an estimate of some sort that outlines many different CPT codes. There's no way that any type of physician can estimate all of the things that could potentially happen during a surgery because you never know. And that's just an example. And it can go to different procedures, different locations. Um, So, uh, you know, I'm personally curious to see how that executive order plays out. Future transparency issues that are definitely playing out. This is clearly a priority of the administration. And so maybe something that we could do for a future podcast um, is we could talk about the intersection of physicians or prescribers, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and their access to information, especially when it comes to prescription drugs. Um, There's also a push to try to get the electronic health records updated and integrated so that yes. physicians have that. And I, I know personally, I've had been in doctor's offices where they have had that, and that's actually pretty cool. Um, well, if I prescribe drug X, it will cost you this much. You know, it's a preferred brand. Um, the other option is a non-preferred brand. Um, and I could clearly see the difference there. Um, you know, I think the brand to generic 
switch. And um, now that we have biosimilars coming online, um, the the generic and biosimilars providing uh, price competition is sort of an easy opportunity. Um, but you know, I think that there might be other opportunities for physicians. Um, and it also comes along with just making value-based decisions in healthcare. So I think these could be several these different could all be, episodes. Right. So why don't we go ahead and wrap this up here. So I want to thank everyone for listening to our very first episode. So thank you so much. If you guys want to contact us, if you want to ask a question, um, we will leave our email address in the show notes. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.